Our gracious Father, thank you for your immense love for each of us. Thank you that you are the firm foundation that we can build our lives on. That you, Lord, are the rock that can't be moved. And that is why when our lives are built on your love and your truth, we cannot be shaken. You've given us so many great and precious promises. Among my favorite is that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And Lord, I'm so, so thankful. Because you know, I've tried to separate myself from your love. I'm not the only one. And you keep pulling me back because you love me so much. Maybe even a little more than everybody else. But that's just my delusion. As we look into your word tonight, Father, I pray for your guidance. I pray that your spirit would teach us and that you would be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Love. It's dark and I'm old. I can't help it. Second Kings, chapter number the sixth one. I love it whenever a light gets turned on in here, that you hear a pop in the sound system. That's not supposed to happen. And I have made sure that all the cables in the back are shielded, but still, only so much you can do. Hey, though. I just, I want to give God glory, even though I'm supposed to be teaching right now, and we'll get there in a moment, but this is recorded, and I want to give God glory. This is the first service we've had in the last two weeks that we did not have a problem with the sound system. To God, be all the glory. I think uh, he's finally led us to figure out all the bugs, and yay. Last week, we spent our time looking at Naaman the Syrian general who came to Israel to be healed of leprosy and the work that God did through Elisha, not just to heal the man, but to save him as well. We ended by looking at Gehazi's greed, Gehazi being the servant of Elisha, and the consequences of his greedy actions. This week, we will look at two miracles that God did in Elisha's life. The first one um, I put, I put this down, and then I, I wrote myself a note, right? The first one, sort of a mundane daily miracle, but no miracle is really mundane. But the point I was getting at is it was just a normal, everyday thing. And God answered. Because God cares about everything in our lives. The second one, so much bigger. This teaches us, I think, to keep God as the forefront of our thoughts in every aspect of our lives. So we pick up in chapter 6, and we'll read the first seven verses. Then the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please, let us go to the Jordan, and let every man take a beam from there, and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please, consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees, but as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick, threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore he said, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. This might not seem like all that big of a deal to us. 
Uh, I've, I've broken tools before. Um, not that many because I don't do a lot of stuff that requires the use of tools. But I've, I've broken a tool or two in my time. I remember one time. <laughs> I shouldn't tell this story. We were living in a mobile home and the sink went wrong. This was the incident that made it so I am not allowed to work on plumbing. And basically what, what had happened was, I think it was just the faucet cracked or something. It was old. So I went to the store, and I'm like, oh, a faucet's not expensive. And I looked, and, well, you take that off, you take that off, you do this, that. Well, this is easy, right? And the guy, I'm buying it, he goes, do you have a basin wrench? And the confused look on my face told him I didn't have one. So he showed me and, and said, you need a basin wrench because there's going to be a part you won't be able to get to. Fair enough. So I bought me a basin wrench. Broke the sink. Bent the basin wrench. Because I was working so diligently. Had nothing to do with anger. Nothing. Um, ended up calling my wife's uncle, who was a plumber, Uncle Johnny. He came out and he fixed it for us. He laughed when he saw my basin wrench. <laughs> um, that story has not a whole lot to do, uh, other than the fact that this guy borrowed an axe and, and he broke it. Right? And for us, well, if you were in the middle of chopping a tree down and you broke your axe, we'd run over to Ace or up to Walmart and you'd buy a new one. Um, or, or a tractor supply, right? Um, but that was not the solution. Now, because of how expensive an axe would have been at that time, and because of their culture, right? And we read about this not long ago, about another one of the prophets who died, but he was in debt, and his sons were about to be sold into slavery, so the miracle of the oil to, to protect that family. Here, if he couldn't pay this man back that he borrowed the axe from, well, that man could take him as an indentured servant until the debt was paid. So this was, you know, when he goes, um, alas, master, for it was borrowed there in verse 5. We're like, you broke the axe, big deal, right? No, it was a big deal. But even if it was a small thing, God cares about every aspect of our lives, down to each hair on our head. And that should be very, very comforting for us. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I think, and I know I, I brought this up a lot lately. I think it just keeps showing up in scripture because I need to hear it. But So you all have to hear it too. Um, I think that we, we tend to get stuck in the, let's bring the big things to God and let's try to deal with the little things ourselves. You know, kind of like, uh, we, we treat it like the court system. Right? If you, you got a little problem, you go to a little court. You got a big problem, you go to a bigger court. You got a really big problem, eventually you could take it all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and then that's, that's not it, right? So if, if my problem's small, well, I'll just hang on to it. If it's a little bigger, maybe I'll share it with a few people around me. But if it's big enough... Then, then I'll ask, I'll ask God to get involved. He doesn't care. He doesn't care how small or how, how minute it is. He just loves to hear from his kids. And I'll be very honest, now that my kids are getting older, I much prefer it when they call me, especially John, when he calls me with a small problem. 
Because <laughs> when he calls me with a big problem, it tends to cost me money. <laughs> Us money. But, you know, sometimes he'll call me and goes, yeah, I just had a question about this book. Great. Dad, my car broke down. Oh. <laughs> uh, but there you go. God knows the hair on our heads. There's nothing too big or too small for us to bring to him. Verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God said to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. The king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him, like a scout, right? And thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is at, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. We're going to stop there for a moment. So the king of Syria has a problem. Right? As he seeks to make war against Samaria, that's Israel's northern kingdom, every time he makes a plan, God shows it to Elisha, who then tells the king of Israel. Um, it's so bad that the king of Syria thinks that he has a mole, but it is revealed that it's because of Elisha, and when the king of Assyria asks, it is told him that he's in this city of Dothan. Um, this is fascinating to me. One, we talked about the fact that Elisha was surprised when God didn't speak to him. Because man, he, he must have had an amazing prayer life. And kind of had his, you know, God antenna up all the time. Uh, right? There, they, he was out in the wilderness. He was praying. And he would just, God would be like, oh, by the way. The king of Syria is camped over here. You should let the king of Israel know. Okay. So he would send a messenger over there. And every time it was true. Right? And this, this was just kind of a... This was just normal for him. Which I think is just astounding. I'm a little jealous. I wish it was that normal for me. And then, then you get the other side of it. Um, where why would God warn the king of Israel at all? The king of Israel was a scumbag. Right? Always worshiping idols and just disobeying God as often as he possibly could. And that is a picture of grace, a picture of mercy. Right? What did the king of Israel deserve? Deserved to be defeated by Israel. And or, sorry, deserved to be defeated by Syria. But in God's mercy, not giving him what he deserved. He revealed these locations to Elisha, who sent it on. Grace. Right? Preservation of life. Preservation of the kingdom. Didn't deserve that, but he gave it anyway. Verse 14. In verse 14, he sent the horses and chariots and the great army. They came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots 
And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, put yourself in Gehazi's spot. Right, he wakes up. Maybe he's, you know, it's time to make the coffee or, or whatever it is, walks over to the window. And, and, you know, put yourself in that place that you wake up in the morning and you go out to um, make coffee and you look out your window and your, your house is surrounded by a SWAT team. Right? That might be a little unnerving. But the whole city is surrounded by a military force. And then, and then he, he cries out to his boss, like, Elisha, what are we going to do? Uh, don't worry, we've got more than that. Now, Gehazi may have been, you know, I'm, I'm not a math guy. But there's you, and there's me, and I'm a leper, and you're a prophet, neither of us military guys, and we're surrounded by an army with horses and chariots. Uh, I, I don't know, boss, but I'm pretty sure your counting is off a little bit. And so Elisha prayed in verse 17 and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this a city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. And so it was when they came to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and, they were, and there they were inside Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And he answered, No, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master." Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Oh, I love, love, love this. I do not blame Gehazi for his response. Alas, right? This is a phrase of desperation. This is a phrase that you've given up, right? Oh, we're, we're toast. We're done. There, there's nothing else. It's over. Right? That's, that's the phrase. And there's nothing left to do but die. And then your master says, hey, don't worry about it. We got more than that. And I love that because you know that remains true for us. Romans 8.37 says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 1 John 4.4 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I don't care what we're facing. Those who are with us are much greater than those who are against us. So Elisha prays for Gehazi to gain sight into this. And so he sees what's going on, right? A, a chariots of fire, an army um, surrounding them. But they don't attack the Syrians. Right? I think this is just to let Gehazi know that there's nothing to worry about. So they come down, and the first thing that popped into my head, right? Elisha says, this is not the way, nor is this the city. I can see Elisha in his nice long robe, 
waving his hand. These are not the droids you're looking for. It's a Star Wars reference. Right? These, these are not the droids you're looking for. He can go about his business. Right? Because they come down and he's like, Lord, strike them with blindness. And they're blind. And he says, this isn't the place and I'm not the guy. And the army is like, oh, okay. Well, where should we go? He goes, follow me. I'll take you there. <laughs> and he takes him to the capital. And they get to the capital. And the king is like, dude. Or he says, my father. you know. But he's like, dude, what, what should I do? Should I kill him? No. Right? In our law, we don't, we don't kill people that we take captive in, in battle. So he goes, feed him and send him home. So that's what he does. Which boggles my mind since the king of Israel isn't often one to listen to the instructions of the prophet. It says the end of it was that the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Right. So in verse 24, this, this doesn't last long because they come up and siege Samaria, which we'll get to in a moment. But for a time... This ended hostilities or, or calmed them down. So I mentioned last week that there is a spiritual world or spiritual realm around us that we don't see. We should be aware of it. And I think there are times that we will be more aware of it than others. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.18, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul also wrote in Ephesians 6.12 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I don't know about you, but I forget that one a lot. Anybody else? Anybody else? Man, somebody will make me mad, and I, I will forget that, you know what? I'm probably not really mad at that person, that there is some kind of spiritual thing going on. Um, and I need to take that into consideration before I, you know, pop my lid. Um, I, I don't always think about that till later. But it's true. Uh, when I hurt my knee last week, Tuesday, you can ask my wife, there's evidence of this in our home. I was very mad. I was so mad. I mean, it was something I'd done in pickleball hundreds of times. Why was it that time that I landed wrong? I can't explain it. So what I've been doing over the last week is asking God to show me. Do I need to slow down? Do I need a break from pickleball? I kind of think that's it, but I'm trying not to admit it. Um, you know, what, what is it? What is it that you want to teach me from this? And maybe it was a spiritual attack. Maybe it wasn't. But what I can tell you is why my knee hurts. There's a whole lot more going on. I, I don't think God allows things or even orchestrates them. I mean, for all I know, he flicked my knee out of place um, because I needed it. I don't know. But what I do want to know is uh, I don't want it to be wasted. I want to learn from it. I want to grow from it. I want to understand that there's more going on than just the physical thing. I think that's good for us to pay attention to. And we have places like Job 1 and 2, 
where we see things taking place in the spiritual realm that we would never know about if, if the Holy Spirit didn't reveal it to us in the Word. Um, then we have places like Daniel 10, uh, right, in verses 12 and 13. Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. With all this going on, what do we do? That, that scene right there is mind-boggling. I was sharing this with, with my family the other day. I recently read a book um, called God Has a Name. Very, very good book by John Mark Comer. And one of the things that he brings up is this passage when he talks about the little g-gods that we see throughout the, book, the Bible. Because we see a lot of little g-gods, don't we? And he said, the people were truly afraid of them. Right? I mean, these, these were bloodthirsty, probably demonically influenced. But they sacrificed their children, and, and they did all kinds of things because they were truly afraid of these entities. He goes, now a lot of times we just dismiss them as a, as a demonic force, and they may well be. He goes, but then you get to Daniel chapter 10, where the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood the angel that was dispatched to answer Daniel's prayer. So much so that this battle lasted for three weeks, and the only way the angel could get away and bring the message to Daniel that meant to be that he needed to, to bring to him was that Michael had to come and get involved to deal with what was going on. Now, does that boggle anybody else's mind? That means in this situation that the prince of the power of Persia, some being, be it a demon or something else, so powerful that he could hold up an angel of God who was sent to deliver a message to Daniel. So powerful that he managed to delay this message being delivered for three weeks. So powerful that Michael, the archangel, had to come and deal with it. That tells us that there's stuff going on in the spiritual realm that we don't know. Is there a prince of the power of Gunnison? Is there some for, form of demonic entity, false god, that tries to prevent people from hearing from God here? That tries to prevent people from coming to Christ? That tries to pull people farther and farther into darkness? I'm not going to say yes. I'm not going to say no either. Walk around Crested Butte during Venetoc. There's something there. And I'm very grateful in times when I've been up in Crested Butte during the time of Venetoc that I am filled with the Holy Spirit because whatever's there can't touch me. But man, there's more going on than we know. So with all that going on, what do we do? We remember that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We remember that when God is for us, there are none who can be against us and that we are more than conquerors in him, Romans 8, 31 and 37. When all we do is look at the material world around us, like Gehazi did, it's really easy to get freaked out. You know, I can't deal with this bill. I can't deal with that injury. I can't deal with this conflict. 
But when we pray, as Elijah did, that God would open our eyes to see what he is doing, well, it's a lot less scary, isn't it? Verse 24. And I know you're thinking, wow, you're not going to get through the chapter 7. Yeah, yeah, I will, I promise. Because chapter 7 is pretty quick. And it happened after this, right? We're not given a period of time. There was a period where... Um, the raids stopped, so hostilities ceased for a while. And it happened after this. So it, it could be a week, it could be a month, we don't know. That Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Okay, this, this is a pretty serious famine. When all of a sudden the skull of a donkey is, is worth hundreds of dollars and um, half a cup of dove poop is worth, you know, 30, 40 bucks. I don't want that soup. I'm thinking starving to death would suck. But if you present me donkey head and bird poop soup, I'd be like, you know what? I'm good. I'll be fine. But it gets worse. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help me, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? I do find that interesting that he uses the name of God, right? If Yahweh won't help you, what am I supposed to do? Right? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Basically, he's saying, I, I don't have anything. What, how, how can I help you? I'm as bad off as you are. The king said to her, What is troubling, troubling you? And she said, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. Now, I'm just going to throw this out there. If it comes down to eating children, we're eating both at the same time, right? None of this, we'll do one today and one tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. Oh, and I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. You have to think about what she was asking the king for help with. Make her bring out her son so we can kill him and eat him. Oh. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes. And as he passed by on the wall, the people looked. And there underneath, he had sackcloth on his body. And then he said, God do so to me and more also. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shabbat, remains on him today. Why? It's not. This isn't Elisha's fault. But Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer, <laughs> we use a different phrase in our language, but it's still son of a something. Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? I... I want to hear God like Elisha, right? He's sitting there with these guys. He goes, hey, there's a servant coming. He's supposed to chop off my head, but the son of a murderer is going to come right behind him. So when he comes in, just grab a hold of him and we'll wait till the king gets here. Right? And what happens, right? While he was still talking, there was the messenger, Right, coming down to him. And there the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Well, Elisha said, Hear the word of Yahweh. 
Thus says Yahweh, tomorrow about this time, a seya of flour, a fine flour, shall be sold for a shekel, right? Nothing. And two seyas of barley for a shekel, right? Nothing. At the gate of Samaria, right? This is simple supply and demand. You have no supply, demand goes up, prices go up. What he's saying is tomorrow the supply is going to be so overwhelming that the demand is going to be gone. It's not going to be worth anything. So the, an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, I love this. So warfare back then was a little different, right? Today, if we wanted to take a city that it didn't make any sense to send ground troops in to try to take, what would we do? We'd send the big planes with the big booms, and we would pummel that city until they either either there was nothing left or they had no heart and we could walk in and, and take it, right? That, that's how warfare is done today. Well, they, they didn't have that option back then. So what did they do? They surrounded the city, cut off the water supply, left them to starve to death. The theory being, eventually, when it gets to the point where they're eating donkey heads and bird poops and children, that they'll surrender. They got to that place. Now, God made a promise to Israel that if they would continually disobey him, what we see happening here is what would happen. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 57. It says, Her children whom she bears, for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at the gates. This was a prophecy that if they continually, continually rejected the Lord, that they would come to cannibalism. The king blames Elisha, uh, which I find fascinating, because the problem was not Elisha. The problem was the king. Um, and oftentimes, when the consequences of our own actions come upon us, we look for someone to blame instead of just repenting. Well, you go back to the garden. Adam, where are you? We hid because we heard your voice in the garden and we were naked. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat of? Was well, the woman, the woman you gave me, Lord. No, but just, just in case you were wondering, you gave me this woman and she gave me the fruit. It wasn't my fault. Eve, what did you do? Well, you don't understand. The snake, the snake made me do it, right? The devil made me do it. I wonder, right, right, they still fell. They still had to be out of the garden. But I wonder what would have happened. Right, we'll never know, but I wonder what would have happened if God said, Adam, what did you do? Father, I'm sorry. I, I ate the fruit. I know I wasn't supposed to, but I did it. I'm sorry. I wonder if it would have been just a little different. I don't know. Elisha, then, after the king, you're right there, hang on to the servant. The king comes. <coughs> he says, this is, don't worry about it. Tomorrow, everything's going to change. Right? No problems. No, no worries. There's going to be plenty of food. Everybody's going to have everything they need. And this guy goes, well, what if, what if, God can't do this. Right? Even if he opens the heavens, how is this going to work out? And Elisha looks at him and says, fine. You'll see it but you won't taste it. 
And this is a just a terrible price to pay for unbelief. That he would see God's deliverance, but he would not be able to partake of it. How many people today will one day see God, but not partake of salvation because they refused to believe in Jesus? I find that uh, it's, it's very sad. I think it's very sad, but you know, when we think about it, at some point in time, everybody will see our king seated on his throne. Everybody will bow at the feet of Jesus and confess that he is king. But not everybody who does that will be saved. Because those of us who believe before we die, we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who refuse will still bow before him, will still worship him as king before they are judged and sent into eternal condemnation. They will see the salvation they could have had. They will bow before the throne of the Savior, but they will not be able to partake of it because they didn't believe. So incredible. So we're going to pick up chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Uh, remember, lepers were thrown out, right? They weren't allowed to be part of the community. Even during a siege, they weren't allowed inside. They were just sitting by the gate. And, you know, the Syrians are like, well, we're not going to bother with those four people. They can just sit there and die. Uh, plus, they were lepers, and they knew. Um, and they, they, they look at each other like, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, well, the famine's still in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we're going to die. And therefore, let, let's go over and surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we'll live, right? Maybe, maybe they'll give us something to eat. They won't kill us right away. And if they kill us, we shall only die. And at this point in time, with people eating children and, and, and poop soup, I'm pretty sure getting your head chopped off is, is a much better option than starving to death. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into the tent and they ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. And then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and they called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. And the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. 
Therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, Please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Right? Here's what it boils down to. Let us go look. Yeah, we may die, but if we stay here, right, like the lepers had said, we're going to die anyway. Therefore, they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, such uh, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned to the king, or returned and told the king, and the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned, right, it's the same guy who said this would never happen, to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down to him. So yes, he saw it, but he didn't touch it. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two seahs of barley for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria, that the officer had answered the man of God and said, Now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. I like, I like that the recording of this account really wants us to know that this is the guy, right? It would have been good enough, right? Just as, just as the Lord said through Elisha, we would have gotten it because we just read it, you know? But he really wants us to know that this guy was the problem. So such a cool scene, right? These lepers are like, we're going to die no matter what happens, so we might as well go look. So they go look, and the camp is empty. They go into the first tent. What do they find? They find food, so they eat. They find water and they drink. They find gold and clothing, so they take it and they go hide it. Let's go back and check out another tent. They go in another tent. They take more food and more gold and they go and hide that. And I'm kind of thinking as they're walking back the third time, one of them goes, hey, hey, wait a second, guys. We're, 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 we're going to get some kind of punishment for this. We really should tell everybody else. So they go back and they tell everybody the king's like, it's a trap. It's not going to happen. No, this is what they've done. They're hiding. And as soon as we go out, they're going to kill us. And a couple of guys like, dude, we got to go check this out. And if they kill us, fine, we're going to die anyway. But if they don't kill us, then the city's going to be saved. You know, isn't that worth sending out four or five guys on horseback to figure out what's going on? So finally, the king says, okay. And what happens? It turns into a day of rejoicing and feasting because God had saved them. All except Mr. Dowdy Pants, who gets trampled to death in the gate. According to the word of the Lord, the word that God had spoken by Elisha, it came to pass. May God help us to never miss what he wants to do because of our unbelief. We have promises. Promises from God for some amazing things in our lives in his word, maybe promises that he's spoken to us. I don't want to miss that because I doubt. Next week, we'll get back. We'll see the Shunammite woman again. She comes back after the siege and the famine. 
Um, but that's next week. So until then, let's pray. Father, we believe. Please help our unbelief. Help us to never miss the work that you are doing or that you want to do in our lives because of unbelief. Help us, Father, to be aware of the spiritual realm around us, not so that we can be scared, but so that we can rest in your victory. Give us your grace, I ask. Strengthen us according to your spirit. Guide us according to your word. For Jesus' sake, we ask that you would hear our prayer. Amen.